Please join me as I read from God's Word. Scripture tonight comes from 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will soon will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Please be seated. Thank you, Danny, for our reading tonight, and thank you, Lynn, for uh, the songs that you've led us in. We've had beautiful singing, and as we always do, and I'm very grateful for these song leaders and the fine way that they lead us and for the prayers. Thank you, John, for that, and I do solicit your prayers as we continue to work together and serve God in this uh, place, and we're very grateful for that, grateful for the opportunity to be here and to work for the Lord in this capacity. I know this is a holiday season. A lot of people are visiting, and if you're visiting with us tonight, we're very happy to have you and always uh, an encouragement for our visitors to come and be our way. But we also know that there are those who are out because of holidays, and we want to pray for them and their safe travel. And we're very grateful that they're able to take time out of a busy schedule and visit with family and friends. What we tried to do today is build a little on that in that we were looking at some of the signs that we have around us and I tried to make a parallel to some of the signs that God has given us. There are a lot of signs that we have in the holiday season which tell us of what kind of holiday it is. And that's the way it is with the Word of God. He's given us a number of signs to go by, and He wants us to remember them. That's the thrust of our lesson text, which Danny read tonight, 2 Peter chapter 1, 12 through 15. It's a Bible passage which talks about Peter. And he says, I want to remind you of these things. Now you know them, but I want to remind you of them. And it's important that you keep this in memory. And I made the point this morning, just in passing, and I make it again tonight, that we need lessons like that from the Bible. We need lessons that remind us, because we have learned them, but if you're like me, sometimes we forget. And if we don't have a continual observance of such we'll soon lose sight of the reminder altogether. It's good to be reminded, isn't it, of these important Bible matters and Bible passages so that we can grow by faith. And that's what we tried to do today by looking at this great sign, the rainbow. And I'll be very brief in my introductory remarks, but I like to hook back into the thought. And the thought is looking at these wonderful signs. That's a wonderful sign, the rainbow, but it does tell us how temporary the world is. It's not always going to be here. God destroyed the world once. He's going to destroy the world again. Not by a flood, as he promised in that bow, but he is going to destroy it by fire. A devastating destruction. One which we all want to avoid and all can avoid by faithful obedience to the word of God. And every time you see a rainbow up in the sky, you soon think of God's promise never to destroy the world again by flood, but he will destroy it by fire. And then we spent a moment today talking about the heavens, another subject I enjoy talking about. It's a subject about the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
And we use that psalm, Psalm 19, to discuss the matter, how that this is a continual manifestation of the existence of God and something of the nature of God. Theologians call this a natural revelation, the Bible a supernatural revelation. There is a natural kind of revelation, the world in which we live, and then there's a supernatural revelation, the Bible, the inspired Word of God, all attestating to the fact that God is behind it all that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and He's the creator of our souls. He is the sustainer of our life. Without God, we would be nothing. And we actually reference Job, where Job, all through his book, is saying, if I could just have an audience with God, then I could lay my complaint before Him. Job was suffering, you know. He was suffering due to the work of Satan, removing his health, removing his family, destroying his wealth. And yet, through the course of the book, he realizes, you know, I'm innocent of this, I really am not suffering. I'm suffering, but I really don't deserve this suffering. And so if I could just lay my case before the presence of God, then He'll vindicate me. And then when He had the opportunity to do it, then He was as silent as the tomb when God was asking those series of questions at the end of the book. You see, you can't criticize God. No one has a basis in which to complain or to criticize God. And that was made very evident with regard to the case of Job. God is behind it all, and of course without Him we would have nothing and we would be nothing. This is not one of my favorite signs, as I mentioned this morning. I talked a little bit about from Genesis chapter 3, and we'll go back to that chapter again tonight as other signs are given to us. But God wants us to remember about these crawling snakes, and every time you see one, you naturally think about the fact that sin will be punished. Adam and Eve were given that beautiful garden, but they lost that garden, didn't they? A point that I want to expand on tonight. But as they lost the garden, they did so because of sin, and they were cast out of the garden, Genesis 3 and 24. God put cherubim there with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden, and they could not go back in. Sin has its consequences, and Satan, receiving that particular matter... Uh, It is a sign for us, as we saw from the pages of the belly, I mean, (laughs) from the pages of the Bible, on your belly you shall go, he said, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, referring to the serpent, Genesis 3 and verse 14. It's a sign. Every time we see a, a snake, a serpent, we ought to think, sin has consequences. Look at what sin brought about in the life and in that situation. And then I brought up this particular point. I don't know if I should call it a sign or not. It's called a memorial in the pages of the Bible. It's certainly recognized or looks like a sign to me, and and that is the bread that we take on the first day of the week and the fruit of the vine, which we have on the first day of the week. This is a memorial. It reminds us of the death of Jesus. Now, we're here on the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Christ. But that bread represents the death of Jesus, his body on the cross. And that blood, that fruit of the vine, represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross. And I would like to go back to Hebrews chapter 9. I made brief mention of this verse this morning, but I didn't really study it with you. And I think it's well deserving of our attention. And that is this Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16. Therefore, verse 15 begins, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And so he makes it very clear that the death of Jesus brought about this great covenant which we have, this New Testament covenant. And that Lord's Supper is a memorial of that. Notice verse 22, the same chapter. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And we think about that shed blood. And we think about that promised body, which God said would come and did come in fulfillment of the promises which he gave, making eternal life possible for all them that obey him. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 9. But I'd like to expand upon this particular matter and look at some signs, some signs we didn't study this morning. And the time just wasn't generous enough for us to do that today. We want to study tonight another sign that's a very common one, one which I'm sure you're very familiar with. It's found for us back in Genesis chapter 3, our old chapter there, where God not only spoke to the serpent and gave a sign with regard to him, but God also spoke to the woman. Now you'll remember the situation very well. Situation being that God put a, a tree in the midst of the garden, and he told them, Do not eat of that tree. And then the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And of course, as Satan comes, he works his way into this situation whereby he tempts Eve and he tempts uh, the husband, Adam, and in so doing, they partake of this forbidden fruit. And so God comes walking in the cool of the day, almost like a plantation owner. And he says, Adam, where art thou? And Adam was hiding. We'll examine that passage of Scripture in just a moment. But I'd like to focus on what he had to say, not only to the serpent, but now to the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The Bible is making very clear that God increased the pain that she would have in childbearing. Now, let me think a little bit out loud with you this evening, and I'm no expert in this matter at all. But I think the matter of increasing the pain of childbearing has special significance in this particular matter. It is a sign, a sign that tells us the penalty for sin is severe and it's very great. We studied a sign just a moment ago about sin and about the penalty for sin, but here we see something of the greatness of the penalty for sin. I suppose there's nothing greater as far as pain is concerned than the pain of giving birth to a child. I'll keep in mind they didn't have the medical means as we have today, but even there, there's great pain added to it. And again, I say, I'm not an expert in these particular matters at all, and I readily admit it. But I've lived on the farm most of my life, grew up on the farm, and I've seen many animals be born on the farm. And it does not seem, though I may be mistaken on this, it does not seem that animal life has the same level of pain in giving birth that a human being does. It does not seem to me that animal life goes through that same intensity that same kind of pain in birth as a woman would go through in giving childbirth. It's described as being the greatest of pains. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. And this particular concept of giving uh, birth and the pain associated with that 
is used and utilized a number of times in the pages of the Bible. I would suspect it's one of the greatest of pains that one can experience. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 3, he says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Well, of course, he's talking about the day of the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians says so much about that concept, and 2 Thessalonians does as well. And talking about the suddenness of it and the destructiveness of it, he talks about the pains that come upon a woman as she's about to deliver and as she's about to give birth. It is a kind of model for suffering used in the pages of the Bible. I don't believe the animal world really suffers like that in giving birth. I've seen animals get sick. I've seen animals sort of go through a delirium in giving birth. But I don't believe that I've seen the kind of intense pain and suffering that the woman goes through in giving birth. I'm not an expert in these matters. All I know is what the Bible is trying to say, that it is an intensive type of pain in Genesis chapter 3. Why? It is a sign. It is a sign of the magnitude of sin. It is a sign of how terrible sin is and how it must be paid for. Not that the woman herself who's giving birth is guilty of sin and having a child. That's not the point. The point is the original pair, that Eve, when she ate of the forbidden fruit, thus the penalty for that, there's a sign that's given, that sign being the pain that is found in giving birth to a child. There is an interesting passage in John chapter 16 that I'd like to turn to, and I made reference to it on the chart before you. John chapter 16, Jesus makes reference to this sign. And he wants us to understand something about it. Now here, I should talk more about the context so that chapter 16 will have more meaning. Uh, just to take a passage out of the Bible and, and, and then read it, it doesn't mean much, does it? And we could easily misrepresent the intent of the passage if we're not careful and true to the context in which the passage is found. I've seen a lot of preachers, they quote a lot of passages and a lot of Scripture but little exposition with regard to the context in which the passage is found. And it would do us very little good, really, to just pick out a passage here and pick out a passage there. And so I always like to speak to the context and speak to the setting. And the setting in John chapter 16 is the idea of the apostles are troubled over the fact that Jesus is leaving them. Now, they've learned this. And Jesus is giving some consolation to them in chapter 14, chapter 15, and in our present consideration, chapter 16. And in this paragraph, he's saying to them, I know you're confused. I know you don't understand everything. You're going to feel sorrow for a little while. But then there will be joy. And what he's referencing in the passage is that even though they will be filled with sorrow over his leaving, still there's going to be that great day of resurrection and they're going to be filled with joy and they will understand that matter. And the great day of Pentecost is coming not too far away and they're going to understand these matters as the Holy Spirit will come upon them, lead them and guide them into all truth. And that's much of what these great chapters are about. Chapter 12, chapter, well, chapter 14, 15, and 16. The promising of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles of Jesus Christ. To help them understand this matter of sorrow and joy, he uses this illustration of the pain of childbirth. And it's found for us in verse 21. 
when a woman is giving birth, John 16, 21, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. He's trying to illustrate for them the fact that they're filled with sorrow now over his departure, but he's going to be raised from the dead. And there will be great joy over that particular prospect. The point being, sin has to be paid for. And every time a mother cries, giving birth to an infant child, it is a sign, a sign of sorrow, a sign of pain, a sign of anguish, because sin entered into the world and we inherit the consequences of that sin sin is a devastating matter it has tremendous penalty and God in the long ago in Genesis chapter 3 gave us a sign and when that takes place we remember rebellion against God one always loses your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. There's another sign that's given, and we should not forget it. The sign of the thorns and the thistles found for us in Genesis chapter 3. Not only did God speak to the serpent in chapter 3, 14, he spoke to Eve in 3, uh, 16. Now he speaks to the man in Genesis 3, 17, and he gives him a sign. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now this passage in Genesis chapter 3 is giving us a sign. The sign that is being referred to here are the thistles, the thorns, the briars that grow up. You see, man was given a garden. It was a beautiful garden. And in this particular garden, there, of course, were everything, was everything that God uh, had provided for man and that man needed. But now that sin has entered into the world, and I'm going to speak a little more about that in our next sign that we have in chapter 3, why man was cast out of the garden, as I mentioned a moment ago. And now he has to face a world, a rather cold and cruel world. And the world now has changed because of sin. And I really believe that if we could see the world before sin had entered into it, it would be quite a different place in which to live. But now we see the world as the result of sin coming into it. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you thorns and I'm going to give you thistles. And you're going to have to work by the sweat of your face for your bread to eat. And it's going to be a different world out there now because you have failed to be submissive to the divine will of God. Now, every time you get out into the yard, 
which I know some of you, this is probably a favorite thing for you to do. It is not for me. But when you get out in the yard and you do your yard work and you're pulling the weeds and you're cleaning this and you're cleaning that about your house and about your home, you ought to remember, this is a sign. I'm having to do this because sin entered into the world. Man lost his paradise and now lives in a world that is filled with sin, a sin-driven, sin-devoted world. In Romans chapter 8, you see how sin has actually impacted the physical world. In the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, it's a great chapter, and we ought to devote a lot of time to the 8th chapter. I haven't done it that much. We have covered this chapter in uh, Sunday morning Bible classes, but it really deserves some serious consideration. But he talks about the world has been affected by the problem of sin. He's talking about the material world as well. For I consider, and he's about verse 18 here of Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, the world suffers. Physically, materially, the world suffers because of the entrance of sin into the world. It's not anything the world did to deserve this, but the world receives the consequences of sin. You see, I'm talking about the point man has lost his paradise. God created paradise in the long ago for man. But he lost that because of sin. Every time we go out there and we have to deal with the world, the briars and the thistles and the weeds which come up, and we're trying to cut that back and clear it out, it is a sign. It is a sign of the fact that man no longer lives in a paradise here, that he lost his paradise. And that's his point in this portion of Romans chapter 8, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, verse 21, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even the world itself, the physical elements, has had to suffer due to the fact of sin coming into the world. He's speaking metaphorically here. He does not mean literally that the earth or the creation groans. If you have problems with that kind of language, just go back to the Old Testament and look at Psalm 114 where God talks about the hills leaping and laughing like rams and the sheep of the mountains. Uh, the created world in a metaphorical type of way is active and doing that sort of thing. It's a common way for Bible writers to write. He's not literally talking about the creation groaning, but he is saying that the creation suffers because of the problem of sin, and one day it'll be released from the bondage of sin when Christ comes again. And this world which we live in will be destroyed. And it simply reminds us, this world, is not our home. This world is not paradise. This world will not be re renewed or recreated. It will be destroyed. And man will have paradise over there in the beautiful place the Bible calls heaven. And with that in mind, I turn to John chapter 14, a Bible passage that served as a consolation for so many hearts 
through the years. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Verse 4, a comforting passage. Now there's the paradise of God. It's found for us in beautifully described terms in the book of Revelation, where man will receive that on life's other side through faithful obedience to God's will and God's amazing grace. The weeds, the thistles, the thorns, as much as I hate them and as much as you do, they're a sign for us, a sign that this world is not our permanent home, that we lost paradise, that Adam and Eve, through the course of their unfaithfulness, brought about that matter. There is another another one that I'd like to uh, talk to you about tonight, and that's the clothes of animal skins. And that's found for us in Genesis chapter 3, and I turn back to that passage, and I want to study it with you briefly this evening. And there it talks about the fact that when sin did come into the world, that the first human pair soon discovered that they were naked. Now, naked for whose sake? For God's sake? For their sake? Maybe they realize now that their eyes were open, which simply means their understanding came to them. Now they understand that they're naked. I'm in Genesis chapter 3. The passage is about verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now that's an interesting passage there that we probably uh, will not take time to explicate simply because uh, the verbs there are very interesting. How is it that she could be the mother of all living? No one is born yet. But he knew that that was going to happen. And so it's what... Hebrew people, scholars call a prophetic perfect. But anyway, the point is found in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now this was a sign. They were guilty of sin. They heard God walking in the cool of the day. Perhaps we should read that. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. When it says their eyes were opened, now they understand. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I don't know if that's a good translation or not. Uh, One thing is for sure. uh, The effort that they made to cover their nakedness was inadequate. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. An anthropomorphic type of expression to help us understand that they recognized the presence of God coming their way. Now the original word here means the noise of or the voice of. And it seems as the picture is being portrayed for us that in the cooler part of the day they heard the sound of God. Uh, what that actually was, I don't know. Maybe it was the rustling of the leaves, the, the foliage. They could see, they could hear the rustling of that. But at any rate, they knew God was coming. And Moses writes from the standpoint of him walking. 
He's coming in their way. He's coming in their direction. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They find shelter in the foliage, and they're hiding among the trees. They're hiding uh, in the foliage to stay away from the presence of God. And then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And it's not that God doesn't know where he is. God knows where Adam and Eve are. But he's saying this for Adam and Eve's benefit. Where are you? Where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He's saying there, well, where are you? He said, well, I heard you coming. I heard you coming, and I was afraid. And I hid myself. Here's a second question from God. He said, who told you you were naked? Uh, Again, God's not asking this for his benefit or for his better understanding. He's asking this for the benefit and the understanding of Adam and Eve. How did you know this? Have you eaten, another question, of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And it's almost like God dealing with little children here. And he's trying to coach a truthful confession out of them. Have you eaten? Of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. You notice what he said there. He admits, I ate. But he doesn't accept any responsibility for that. It's the woman you gave me. And implied in that, you're responsible for this because you gave me that woman. The woman led me into this direction and you gave her to me. So she's responsible. And by implication, he's saying, you are responsible. He admits the fact, I ate. But he won't admit any consequences. He won't take any blame for himself. Well, what about the woman? Then the Lord said to the woman, verse 13, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She does the same thing. She admits the fact that she ate, but she won't accept any responsibility. She won't accept any blame for what she's done. I ate, but it's not my fault. You know, man hasn't changed, has he? From the very beginning to the very present, Man does not want to have to accept responsibility for his sin. That's the great point about repentance. To repent of the sin is to say, I am guilty, I accept responsibility for that, I'm determined I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to get it out of my life. From the first human pair to the present day, man might admit that he did the wrong thing, but he doesn't want to have to accept the responsibility of it. And they realized that they were naked. And God took animal skins and thus clothed them. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments. Now the translation gives us the word garments here. It probably more like a tunic is what he made. Obviously the clothing that they tried to prepare for themselves was inadequate. 
And so God knows now they're going to be cast out of the garden and they need proper protection, they need proper care. You see, God's grace is still there. He's still having concern for them and love for them and wants to prepare for them. So He prepares garments. He prepares a type of tunic. And the garment that He prepares, the word tunic really is a a type of garment that goes from uh, the top of the uh, neck probably a long sleeve garment down to the knees, maybe even down to the ankles, they say, is what the word means. A complete covering. But it was made from the skins of animals. You see, an animal had to die to cover man for his sin. There was physical covering But Adam and Eve are not so concerned about the spiritual covering that's necessary. There is covering for sin. The wonderful word that's used for that is the word atonement. Atonement is made. A covering is made. When he talked about garments of skins in verse 21, that implies... God took the life of some animal or animals and used the skins of those animals as a covering for mankind. Sufficient covering. Now they're going to be cast out of the garden. Sufficient covering needs to be made. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. I assume he's probably talking about there the triune God. He's talking about the heavenly hosts and the created beings. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he has taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Covering was made, and man in turn has been cast from that beautiful place the Bible calls Eden. The spiritual covering that we enjoy comes to us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not a matter of physical nakedness. It is a matter of spiritual nakedness. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. And atonement was made. In that beautiful passage in John chapter 14 I just read, I think a good point should be made in this connection with uh, chapter 14 verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that covenant, that atonement, that covering. Covering is going to be made for you. A spiritual covering whereby I will die on the cross and the blood which is shed will be taken to the mercy seat of God and heaven itself. And there the covering, the atonement will be made for the sins of the world. John brings the point up in 1 John chapter 1. And there I think we should uh, turn just briefly to it and consider the matter as to how important this covering is. And I'm thinking of Ephesians 1 also. But I'll turn first of all to John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him, verse 5. 
and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And here it is, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. The blood, the atonement, the covering cleanses and cleanses and cleanses. That's why when God looks down upon that individual, that person who has repented of their sins and been baptized into Christ, confessed their faith and living the Christian life, he doesn't see a sinner, though they are. He sees someone who's been covered by the blood of Christ, the atonement. That's why it's so important for you and I to learn from the signs. The clothes of the animal skins covering the nakedness of Adam and Eve. The death of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ clothing me spiritually, keeping me right in the presence of God and in His sight. Now, as John brought out the point, as long as I walk in the light, I'm in the light, I have fellowship with God and with one another. And the blood of Christ continues to cleanse me of my sins. That blood continues to cleanse and cleanse and cleanse, and that covering is there so long as I continue to live according to the will of God and the Word of God. I picked out these signs that I believe will help us live the Christian life. And hopefully, by looking at these signs, you who are not children of God will be motivated to become a child of God by repentance of sin and confession of faith and by baptism into Christ for the remission of sins. And if you've been unfaithful to the Word of God, surely you see the need to look at the signs and remember that rebellion against God is doomed to failure. Come back to Christ tonight. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.